What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. For those who don't know, you know, the last song on Appetite for Destruction is Rocket Queen, and there's a breakdown in the middle of the song where there's a woman uh, who appears to be in throes of having uh, relations with another person. And I know, like, whenever I heard the song, I always assumed that that was like a... relations? You're like Hank Hill. (laughs) Wow. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today, we are going to be talking about 1987, one of the great years in modern pop music history, uh, according to me. And I think it will be according to you as well after this episode. The reason I wanted to do an episode on 1987 is that I've been thinking lately about all the albums that came out this year. And, you know, I've been thinking about this because, of course, this is 2017 and 1987 is, is exactly 30 years ago. And when you are in the business that I am, music criticism, you know, you, you get into this thing like where you write anniversary stories about albums. You know? I enjoy writing them and people enjoy reading them, you know, because it's always fun to write about a record that you've loved for a long time, but maybe you were born too late to write about in the moment. And people love reading about records that they already love. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like a perfect storm of content and, and demand. Um, But 1987 truly was a ridiculous year for not just great records, but like landmark records. You know, the kind of records that get passed down from generation to generation, you know, that continue to be held up as, you know, modern sort of mileposts in modern pop music history. And just to sort of support my case here, I'm just going to list some of the albums that came out this year. We have U2's The Joshua Tree, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, Princess Sign of the Times, The Replacements' Please to Meet Me, the Cure's Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, In Excess's Kick, Def Leppard's Hysteria, George Michael's Faith, Michael Jackson's Bad, R.E.M.'s Document, Fleetwood Mac's Tango in the Night, The Smiths' Strange Ways Here We Come, Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love, Dinosaur Jr.'s You're Living All Over Me, Sonic Youth's Sister, and there's a much longer list after that. <laughs> I think I just rattled off a dozen records that people still go back to and talk about as being just great records, masterpieces, and influential records that continue to inform music today. So to, to delve into this year, to talk about the music of 1987 and why it's important and why we remember it, I wanted to bring on a friend of the podcast, Brian Hyde of Rolling Stone, who I know he's written a lot about the records on this list, particularly the U2, Prince, and Guns N' Roses records I know he's written about. I wanted to get his insight on those albums as, as far as, and, and as well as just like the rest of the year and why 1987 continues to resonate and be, again, I think one of the great years in modern pop music history. So Brian came on, we had a great conversation about it, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So here is me and Brian Hyatt talking about 1987. Hello. Hi. Are we on the air? <laughs> well, we're, we are. Uh, we're recording. We're recording. Yeah, we're not on the air. You know, this is just a podcast, so, you know. It's, uh, I was joking, but yes, we are recording <laughs> the podcast now. You don't. There's no pause in 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 this podcast. You, the the phone rings and you are on. Exactly, 
Well, you know, it's all about the spontaneous uh, thing here. You know, like we're this is like a podcast uncut. You know, we're 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 just out there giving people the real stuff. Um, so, Brian, you know, in the intro to the pod, I rattled off a long list of records that came out in 1987. Um, didn't even list all of them, but there's a lot of notable records that came out that year. Um, I don't know exactly how old you are. I think we're around the same age. I was like uh, like nine years old or so in 1987, but I still have a lot of musical memories from that time. Like I remember listening to Guns N' Roses and U2 and In Excess and uh, George Michael and Michael Jackson and Prince and all like the big records that came out that year. Like what? Like when you think back to them, like what are your musical memories of that time? <laughs> I, I don't. I was a, I was just a tiny bit older than that, and I. I I was not um, a huge a huge music fan in 1987, actually. Um, so I don't I don't know really. I certainly <laughs> remember Bad um, because I you know I, that was probably what I was most excited for uh, Michael Jackson's Bad, um, and I remember um, not liking it quite as much as as, as I had liked Thriller. Um, that that certainly which was uh, an awful lot. I'd like Thriller an awful lot. Um, I'm trying to remember my, my sort of I certainly be, got into Appetite, but probably not for Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction, but probably not for a little bit longer. And I'm sure I heard Joshua Tree that year, but I wasn't a huge fan of that either. So I, I kind of I kind of like the switch turned on for me as a music fan, like like kind of that next year. So it's a, it, it's interesting to it's interesting how little I was engaged at that point. Um, but I was a kid. You know. See, I'm fascinated by this because, like, you are now, you know, you're a Rolling Stone writer. You know, you are ensconced in the music industry. I mean, were you just not old enough yet to care about music? You think at that time, like, were you not like watching MTV I or was, anything? I was. I think. I think probably in '87, I was. If anything, I was. I was about to get into classic rock, which is probably. Um, it was around that time, you know. But yeah, no, I was I was into comic books and stuff <laughs> in 1987. I, I wasn't. Uh, I, I just I just hadn't. Um, I know someone like like uh, like Rob Sheffield was like a super pop music fan, probably from like the age of five. Right. Um, and that just wasn't the case for me. I mean, you know, like looking back, like throughout the years. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of these artists that we're talking about in this year now are classic rock artists, and and I know you've written about. It. A lot of the, of the major players that of you know that made records in '87. I mean, like when you think of like the great years in, in music history, where does '87 stand for you? I mean, do you feel like it does kind of compare to? Do you think it's up there for you, or how does it compare? You think? I mean, because there were just so many classic records that came out that year. Yeah, I hadn't given it a ton of thought until you know you start talking about it, and, and I looked at everything that came out. It, it does it. Feels like it is part of that classic rock era that that keeps extending and extending. I don't think it can extend any past '94. <laughs> <I think laughs> right. That's about where it has to end. But as as the classic rock era stretches on and on, maybe you're writing about this in, in, in your new book. I don't know. Um, but as the classic rock era stretched on and on, '87 does seem like an important sort of linchpin year or something for that late period of rock or classic rock, which is, you know, that when you had the fact that you had Appetite for Destruction and Joshua Tree in the same year, and then you had albums, in, you know, stretching a bit beyond rock, but that you also had 
Prince, Michael Jackson, and Springsteen all releasing very good to classic albums that year. And I was talking with my colleague Andy Green about this. It's also a remnant of the 80s superstar era. The only one who didn't release an album that year of that sort of um, group was Madonna right. between albums. But it's like you had these artists that were just like mega artists in a way that I think we, until recently, we thought we'd never see again. Now we actually have artists like that again in a way. Like Beyonce and even Rihanna seem to like, and Taylor kind of walk the, are in that like giants walk the earth so much bigger than other artists in a way that I think we hadn't seen since right. then, if you know what I mean. And it's so funny. I think that, that, again, like early in the 2000s, people are like, oh, like we're never going to see like artists that big again. And instead, it's like, it, it feels like the big artists ate up even more of the territory now, but there's a whole other story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and to me, that is something that's interesting when you, when you look at 87, because as you said, there's all these big superstar acts. You know, there's also George Michael with Faith, which uh, would yeah. be another record in that class. But you also, I think, had a bunch of bands that originally kind of, in, you know, they originated in the sort of indie alternative underground who were starting to reach critical mass around this REM, time. R.E.M., The Replacements, yeah. R.E.M., yeah. The Replacements, uh, Depeche Mode, The Smiths, uh, you know, uh, the Dinosaur Jr. record, You're Living All Over Me, the, you know, Sonic Youth, Sister was a breakthrough record for them. Um, even like a band like In Excess, which had had some success, but like with Kick in 87, they became like a really big band for a little while. Um, and I think it's interesting if you're going to compare 2017 to 1987, the difference is that you did have this sort of class of bands who did start out in sort of like a small underground scene, but there was still a possibility that you could make the big record that would get you on the radio and enable you to sell millions or you know multi-millions of records. And I guess the Joshua Tree would be maybe the, the big example of that. I mean, U2 was already a, a popular band before that, you know, with War and the Unforgettable Fire, but then with the Joshua Tree releasing just this sort of transcendent record like a like a record as big as born in the usa or you know sure like on that kind of level uh it just put them on a whole other level i mean now people forget that u2 was this sort of scrappy alternative band for many years uh and then with the joshua tree it just they completely became like the biggest band in the world and you could argue that they still are the biggest band in the world in a lot of ways at least in terms of selling concert tickets anyway um but uh, I mean, like for you, you know, I, I mean, I know you've like interviewed and written about a lot of the big artists from this time, you know, Guns N' Roses, U2, Prince. I mean, is there an album for you that kind of stands out as being sort of the defining album of that year or, or a record that you think is really great that uh, you'd put above the rest? Well, you know, I, I have a real soft spot for a real soft spot for Appetite for Destruction. I, I you know, I've said that. On uh, there's there's days when my two favorite albums of all time are Appetite for Destruction and 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 Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. Um, I don't know exactly why, but that's I, you know there's something about that album that that just you know stands out as nearly perfect. Um, but you know th there really was a, a lot of great stuff this year, and I think your point that year, and I think your point is well taken that there, if it was a special year, which you could probably make a case for, it, maybe it's a lot of strains coming together. The, the, the indie alternative bands coming to the, the forefront, uh, you know, and, and uh, the superstars, as we mentioned. There's just a lot of stuff happening. And, you know, and even like uh, 
great Boogie Down Productions album, uh, Paid in Full. There was hip, the, a lot of great hip hop was happening. So I mean, and you were you were saying you were mentioning Tango in the Night, which is uh, the, the the Fleetwood Mac album. And I my my story about Tango in the Night, which is I never heard that album. Well, yeah, I must have heard it, but it never really kind of absor- uh, absorbed it until a few years ago. I, I have to admit. I think basically what happens, I, I must have heard it and been like, oh, I really hate this, and then never listened to it again. <laughs> right. And then what happens when people were saying, when Haim first came out, and people were like, they, they sound like Fleetwood Mac. And my response would be like, no, they don't. What are you talking about? They, don't sound, they literally don't sound anything like Fleetwood Mac. And then I heard Tango in the Night. I was like, oh, you mean they sound like Tango in the Night. <laughs> right. <laughs> they do. Exactly. So that, that, that is the weirdly, that, that, that is a... a a weirdly influential album. Do you like that album? Yeah, you know, well, in, you said we were talking about this. This was like yeah. before the podcast because, yeah. like, I was sharing with uh, with Brian my theory that I think Tango in the Night, the Fleetwood Mac record, is weirdly one of the most influential, certainly rock records that came out in '87, which is not something that anyone would have said ten years ago or maybe even five years ago. I think Fleetwood Mac fans love that record, and I think you know '80s pop aficionados probably, probably liked it, but for a lot of people. That was sort of like the dated period of Fleetwood Mac. Like it's right. like it's very '80s, especially if you compare it to Rumors or Tusk, which, you know, production-wise, those albums still sound timeless. Like they could have come out last year, and you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have predicted that they came out in the late '70s necessarily. Whereas Tango in the Night is very much a 1987 uh, sounding album, and it's funny because I think that I was like you for a long time when like whenever I listened to it. It was hard for me to get into it because of the production. And then recently I revisited it and I really loved it. And I think it's because my ears have been changed by so exactly. much indie pop in the last couple of years. You mentioned the Hyam record. I mean, I think really any sort of 80s sounding indie pop record or even like Taylor Swift's 1989, which is not an indie pop record at all. It's like the biggest record of the last couple of years. But even some of the production on that, you can hear like what Lindsey Buckingham was doing on Tango in the Night, being very influential on that, or like you know, like the Lord record this year, you know, just on down the line of like any of the sort of '80s sounding records that we've heard, um, Tango in the Night. Um, I think there are echoes of that uh, through a lot of those records in a way that you don't hear other 1987 albums that maybe at the time or even decades after people would have thought, well, this is more influential. Like I think Tango in the Night, oddly would sound more contemporary to maybe a young music fan than like the Joshua Tree would, <laughs> you know, maybe in some right. respects. Right, in the bizarre way that these things work. And even in the, uh, even in the, the Lindsey Buckingham, Christina B album from this year, sounds more like Tango in the Night than anything else. Right, exactly. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's peculiar. It's weird how these things work. And then probably it will go back to sounding dated again in a couple of years, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's one of those things like where people are so in a way you get kind of sick about hearing about certain albums being influential, so then new generations of fans dig into maybe more obscure albums in the band's catalog, and it's like, we've heard enough rumors-sounding records, but we haven't heard a lot of Tango in the Night type stuff, and then that be, kind of gets in vogue, and, and, and it ends up influencing people in sort of a, an unusual or unexpected way. Um, I want to go back to Appetite for Destruction, uh, because um, you wrote a story, actually this was like, like 10 years ago, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, It's the 10th anniversary of my 20th anniversary story on Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. But I wanted to talk to you about it because I recently wrote about Appetite for the album's 30th anniversary. 
and I I ended up ranking my all the songs on the album. Right, I saw that, yeah. And I plundered from your your piece, and I credited you, but like I, you know, <laughs> your your piece had a treasure trove of 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 great background information on it. Um, one thing that I uh, that you did in that story was you actually tracked down the woman from Rocket Queen that Axl yeah. Rose. Because for for those who don't know, you know the last song on Appetite for Destruction is Rocket Queen, and there's a breakdown in the middle of the song where there's a woman uh, who appears to be in throes of having uh, relations with another person. And I know, like, whenever I heard the song, I always assumed that that Did was you like say a f- relations. You're like Hank Hill. From the- <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes. Relations. Trying to be respectful here. Yes. Trying to be res- relations with with Axel. Yes. Relations with Axel. And I remember. And and she was uh, she was she was uh, Stephen Adler's girlfriend which is why she was so guilty about what about doing it because it's not like she just did it she was you know i was gonna say film but you know recorded uh literally recorded cheating on her boyfriend on, a, on one of the biggest selling albums of all time and you know what blew my mind when i read your story is that whenever i heard rocket queen i i just assumed that it was like a fake orgasm i didn't i, I didn't think that axel well, was actually having be, but 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 i mean she, she, she <laughs> claims they were but yes they really were they went a lot farther than they had to <laughs> to create and i i think the reason i led with that anecdote is not just because it, it it's certainly if you can begin a story with two people actually having sex it probably will catch the attention of most readers right it's rare that you that can be your scene um number one uh number two is because i i think it does say something about what they were going for on the album without using the the word authenticity but just how far they were willing to push it it says it, you know it, it does it does say something about where they were at for sure you know i mean i know when i read your piece that it actually it changed my feelings about rocket queen i'm actually because i've always loved that song but it actually made me feel worse about liking it because you read this story and the woman you know, she gave her consent. She knew what was going on. Like it wasn't like a revenge porn type situation. But you can also see. I think she talks in there about how she felt some shame about the record afterward. Probably. Yeah, I mean, well, that was specifically because of the cheating part. Okay. In my understanding. Yeah, yeah. Because because it wasn't just that she did it. She did it while she was, uh, you know, while, while she was dating Stephen Adler. But she wasn't with Stephen Adler on the recording. She was with Axel. So there was it was a you know it was a betrayal of Stephen who who's obviously had a rough time of it over the years as well. So right. um, so I think that's I don't think it's my I don't think it's so much the the recording which she kind of thinks is cool if I remember correctly, but just the the cheating part, which is you know a bummer. It's it's you know uh, it's also I remember the, the idea that Axel because when I when I wrote that story, Axel was in the middle of at the time what it seemed like never finishing Chinese democracy. So the idea that even when he was recording intercourse in the studio, it had to be just right. You know what I mean? And so, so like it was ne- nothing was ever going to be right enough for him. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was, it, you know, there was, it, so you're saying one of the things, one of the things that that album was recorded as like all of these albums pretty much were recorded, still recorded to analog tape, you know, and any edits were done by, sli- by splicing tape. Um, which, which is interesting, it, it, which helps perhaps explain why, if it still was the classic rock era, that's why. There, wasn't, there certainly were radical changes between making an album between 1967 and 1987, but not nearly as radical as what took place between 1987 and 1997, I would argue. Right. You know? 
Yeah, and I think someone even says that in the story that this is like one yeah. of the last sort of examples of an album like that where if you wanted to make an edit, you had to get the razor blade out and do it by hand. And like it wasn't like a Pro Tools type situation. It was like you know handmade. And yeah, it, if you wanted to have a sex sound on your record, you got someone to have sex with in the studio. There was <laughs> no sound effects. Play, you, yeah, you didn't just play it <laughs> off the internet. You actually, yes. You know, I just saw Guns N' Roses... Um, on their uh, on their tour last month or yeah last month and it was in a big stadium the stadium was sold out or near sold out and it kind of blew my mind that the reason why so many people were there was because of this album that came out 30 years ago you know i mean obviously GNR had success after appetite there was the usual illusion albums that were that were popular and GNR played a lot of songs off of those but I still feel like the core of their legend is based on this one record. And it, 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 it was just kind of incredible to me that a band could still tour basically on a record that came out like in the, in the last century. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, do you think, I mean, I, I feel like when people talk about rock bands, you know, and how a certain kind of rock band doesn't exist anymore, or they even go as far to say that rock is dead that what they're really talking about is that they don't see another band like Guns N' Roses. Like, I feel like Appetite for Destruction, in a way, is this sort of archetypical rock record, maybe along with Nevermind by Nirvana, that, you know, this idea of a band that comes from the fringes and takes over the culture. And it's like a hard rock band. There's some danger to them. Uh, they're unpredictable. Uh, you know, and there's tattoos and there's scarves and there's all that stuff. <laughs> you know, that kind of image of Guns N' Roses in 1987. That, In a way, that's still fixed in people's minds that that's what a rock and roll band should be. And well, because there's nothing sure, like that, yeah. and because there's nothing like that now, then that means that rock is diminished or that, that rock is dead. I mean, do you feel like that has any validity? I mean, I, I still feel well, like... What's interesting is to look at Guns N' Roses and, and ponder how much of their iconography was already retro at the time, which was a lot. Um, and, and one of the things I, I wanted to get at is, at a broader point is maybe one reason the 1987 was special was because the 80s had been going on long enough for people to be reacting against the 80s. And many of these great records we're talking about don't have – aren't 80s in the way we think of as like early 80s with like totally out-of-control drum sounds and like – cheesy synths, and, you know, it's like people were, and certainly, and Appetite was a reaction to hair metal as well. It was already a, um, it was, it was a, it was a slight, it both sort of a tiny bit was hair metal, as you can see in, like, some of the early videos, a little bit, but it mostly was a repudiation. It was like a hard rock record versus, like, the kind of, like, poofier, less rootsy, hair metal that was coming out. And, and so, again, their iconography was a sort of revival of a rock and roll iconography. Izzy was a pure Keith Richards guy, unfortunately, down to the substance use as well. You know? <laughs> right. So, it was, so I, I think if people are looking, it, you know, like rock already seemed, to, some people wonder whether, you know, it was, it was exhausted in 1987. Of course, I will say that, uh, you know, when I was reading a, a Chuck Berry biography recently, Johnny Johnson, the... Uh, Famous, famously the piano player in Chuck's, Chuck Berry's early band and who may or may not have actually written the music for a lot of his songs, said in 1959, was wondering whether they'd kind of exhausted all the possibilities of this rock and roll thing. It was time to move on, I swear. Right. Um, so, 
But I mean, but yeah, in a way, Guns N' Roses could could be the archetypal rock band in, in in part because they were able to sort of synthesize so many things that had that had come before. I mean, most especially probably Aerosmith. You know, right? <laughs> there well, were there were there were a lot of similarities there. Well, and of course, Aerosmith had their big comeback record in 1987, Permanent Vacation, which had Dude Looks Like a Lady and Angel and uh, all those songs. Yes, and and I think. Guns N' Roses, there's a weird synergy where it's like where the band that imitates you is, is getting bigger. And, of course, we're opening up for them at the time in the Paradise City video, right. which is one of the most genius moves of all time. And it was very nice of Aerosmith, really, to let them do this. They filmed their opening uh, set at Giant Stadium, I think, um, in Jersey. And they filmed their opening set as if they were already stadium headliners. Exactly. <laughs> I know. You notice it's broad daylight because of the opening act. But, it, but when you put that on MTV, it like creates the idea that they're instantly the stadium band, which is, to me, one of the most genius things of all time, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah. Um, and I was making that point to someone uh, recently because they were talking about how they thought the videos for Appetite were, were sort of dull compared to the Usual Illusion videos. And I was like, well, it was important, though, for Guns N' Roses to create an image of themselves with those videos, like oh, Welcome to the Jungle, it's like, well, these guys are crazy. You know, that was the image of that. Sweet Child of Mine, it was like, well, they can be sensitive, and, and Axel's kind of pretty in this video. So that, that was there. And Paradise for City, like you say, it was like, this is the biggest band in the world. Even though right. they weren't quite that yet, they no, were... No, they were the opening act. They, they were, were opening, I mean, a popular opening act, but yeah. And, and I, 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 there's something about that. I, recently, I saw that video recently. I do love that video. Um, I mean, Permanent Vacation is a good... Yeah, you, you actually... That wasn't on your list of, of great albums, but like, you know, and I don't think it actually holds up as an album, but the singles are, it, it do looks like a lady, not perhaps not, um, <laughs> perhaps not currently acceptable, but still ragdoll. Right. Like, um, this, the singles were great. Exactly. Um, but but, but I, I do think that the currency of Guns N' Roses helped Aerosmith also seem current at that time. It, it's, it, it, was an, it was an interesting thing. You know, I want to circle back to a point you made before about the reactionary nature of a lot of the records of this year. I think that's a great point. And I think it's not only true of the rock records that came out this year, because you, know, you were talking about Appetite. I think you could also say that about the Joshua Tree is very sort of like rootsy, sort of straight ahead, like we're, we're, we're being photographed in black and white. You know, we're a very serious band. We're not like, you know, a lot of the sort of early 80s sort of frizzy or, or, you know, like frothy type of stuff. But I also think it's true of the big pop records of that year. You know, certainly, you know, Sign of the Times, Prince, uh, the, the social consciousness of the title track. You know, it's a very serious artistic statement from a guy who, you know, with Purple Rain became one of the biggest pop stars in the world. And then after that, he went and made a series of sort of art first records uh, that had some hit singles on them, but were not... Certainly not in the mold of Purple Rain. So, well, yeah, I mean, Sign of the Times, uh, such a great album. It also marks the end of Prince's sort of, I, I absolutely despise this phrase, but the, what, what they call the, the imperial phase, <laughs> uh, which is when you can do no wrong. Right. Um, it's the actual end of that. And it, is, it, it actually is, uh, you know, so, so it's like 13, I think, I think 20 songs on that record, and I think like basically every single one of them is really good, and they're all very different from each other. And it, he went out with a bang. Not that he really went out, but you know, Love Sexy followed, and that's, you know, people make a case for that. But, but right, he, he kind of, he disappeared into himself at least for a few years after that. He, he kind of, he, he slightly 
if he didn't lose the plot, he went on a plot that wasn't as palatable to a wider audience. Are you going to make me defend the Batman soundtrack? I love, actually, I love Batman. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about the whole soundtrack, but I love Batman. I, I, I absolutely love it. Is Batman? But, I mean, but, but the fact, you know, that, that and you know, the other thing about A Sign of the Times is, is um, it, the, the title track is from a, um, very close to a ripoff of a specific Sly and the Family Stone song, but in a really cool way. Uh, so, so that's, uh, that. That's, it's the combination. It's the way the drum machine works on it, and the uh, the combination of the drum machine and the live. It's anyway. It's it's a uh, it's a neat little nod. I wouldn't say it's a ripoff, but it's a nod to uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's a nod to, to Sly and the Family Stone. It's actually it's the song in time, the first track on an underrated Sly album called uh, Fresh from oh, yeah. '73. Uh, and if you listen to In Time and then Sign of the Times, which even has the word time in it, you'll recognize that it's like a, a, a blatant nod to it. Anyway. Oh, well, there you go, kids. Go pick up <laughs> Fresh right now. Um, going back to like sort of reactionary pop records, uh, one of my very favorite albums of 1987 would definitely be my top five is George Michael's Faith, which is another, I think, it, it's sort of the classic example of a teen pop star breaking out of that mold and making an adult pop record. Like, you know, the, the mold that he created is the mold that Justin Timberlake, you know, Justin Bieber, and all down the line have tried to follow what George Michael did on Faith, where, you know, I Want Your Sex is the lead single. You know, he's wearing the leather jacket, and he has the stubble and the sunglasses, kind of like an Elvis thing crossed with, like, Sly Stallone and Cobra type. He, he, certainly, he certainly invented and, and did better the, uh, the Zane... Zane from One Direction thing would be like, I'm an adult, I have sex, look, look, look thing. Uh, you know, he did that many, many years before Zane. Um, it's funny that you refer to George Michael as a, a teen pop star. Certainly his fans were teens. I, I can, I, I always picture that he was like born at 30 years old with double, you know what I mean? I can't picture like a super young George Michael, but I know exactly what you mean. But like Wham era, like when he's wearing the short shorts and like the day glow shirt, you know, like the sweatshirts and... Right, uh, very boyish looking. I he think. was only 24 uh, when he made Faith, which is crazy because he really did look like a good 32, right? I mean, not, but like it's because it, it, there's just something really funny about that. Well, but I yeah, think... no, and, and even even the cover where he's like possibly smelling his own armpit, you know. <laughs> the, like... But you know that George Michael's armpit in 1987 smelled spectacular. I, like, I imagine so. People yeah, would have lined was, up. So he wanted you to think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he seemed older to me, but that's because I was nine. You know, right. I, if I if I had been in my 20s, maybe he would have seen like my age, but uh, or he would have been my age. But you know, but anyway. Um, <laughs> There's that record, and I think even like Michael Jackson's "Bad" is another example, like where you know he had the very friendly, you know, family-friendly image on Thriller, and then like on the cover of "Bad," he's wearing like the black leather suit, you know, which uh, and, and he's thinking about being bad, and he's like in the subway and uh, fighting with Wesley Snipes. And, and of course, stuff. do you think that song would have been better or worse if, if it had been the Prince duet that Michael wanted? You know, it probably would have been worse, but it would have been a, an amazing video. Like it would have been a, it would have been a better moment in pop music history because like, what what Brian's referring to is that there that when Michael Jackson originally wrote "Bad," that it was conceived as a duet with Prince, and uh, the idea was that they would manufacture this feud in the press like before "Bad" came out to sort of gin up publicity, and that they would appear in the video together. And supposedly Prince didn't want to do it because he didn't want to sing "Your Butt Is Mine," and he didn't yeah. want Michael Jackson. Michael, sing, yeah. He didn't yeah. want he, he didn't want someone saying that to him, and he didn't want to say that to anybody. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, them singing it together, I, I feel like it would have been 
like you know the Jagger Bowie duet on Dancing in the Streets, like just this like super campy moment. Probably would have been like that, but what a moment, you know. But probably a worse song, but a but a better pop moment if that had happened. Some, I mean, the the tracks that you don't remember as well from Bad are really interesting. I was listening to it a bunch earlier this year because I, I interviewed I interviewed Michael's uh, daughter Paris, so I was just kind of getting my head in that space. And the, the, you know, the, the track Speed Demon. Uh, I realize you don't. I don't think you play songs, but like that, I, I, I would check that out. That that is like if you've forgotten about that song, that is a wild sounding song. Oh, I love that song. Um, yeah, no, it's it, it's um, you know, it it, it I, and like who remembers that there was a Stevie Wonder duet on that album? You know, it's like I think I think people have forgotten about the non singles to to a certain extent. Well, and um, and you you brought up something before about Bad that at the time you kind of felt like it was it was a disappointment or maybe not as good as Thriller. And I, I think, think it was also that I was getting a little older, and I think it was what. Michael would probably have feared at the time is like people who were like little kids when Thriller came out and just loved it like they loved no other music had like grown up a little bit and weren't going to accept bad in the same way. I think I think the whole the whole bad like the whole the video thing is obviously like slightly comical, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> like the the um and the, the 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 image was a little labored and but I think the music holds up. I do think it holds up and I you know I I think it comes it doesn't match Thor, but it's a damn good album. And, you know, as far as being a disappointment, I mean, it is. it did have five number one singles, which, you oh, know. Oh, yeah. I mean. It's it only has, a disappointment you know, if you. It Man in the Mirror on it. I mean, right. You know, and the way you make me feel. On it. I mean, you know, it's no joke. I mean, it, it, it's, it's totally a classic album. It's just that the previous album was the biggest album of all time. Right. Uh, and then, which, which brings us to the, the other follow-up, which is interesting, is, is, uh, is, is Springsteen's Tunnel of Love. Right. Which was, it, it's interesting to sort of compare and, tr- and contrast the approaches to following up your biggest album. Um, and, and in Bruce's case, the real follow-up, he had, he had released this mammoth box set, um, live 1975-85, and that had been sort of like the big splashy follow-up. And then uh, with Tunnel of Love, he, he completely flipped it. And I will say, 87 was the only year where Prince and Springsteen's production styles almost intersected. You know, uh, the, 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 Bruce was definitely trying to be as Prince-like as he possibly could on the tunnel uh, on the uh, title track of Tunnel of Love. Well, and he, uh, and, no, he was, and he made that record by himself. I mean, just like Prince would record by himself. I mean, he he essentially recorded that album without the E Street Band. I mean, they came in and did some overdubs, but that's right. The core of that record is this Bruce recording in a garage by himself. That's right, and it was sort of a reconnection of. In his mind, I think a reconnection with his singer-songwriter self, and I think in that case, I think that's an album whose songs have aged better than the production. I, I think that you know it's not grossly dated, but except maybe the title track, but but his choice to record himself and use drum machines and stuff have dated that album in some ways more than possibly any other Springsteen album. Well, and but the songs on it are pretty much incredible from start to finish. Yeah, I mean, I I love Tunnel of Love. I would actually disagree slightly. I think that. I mean, you and I are both big Springsteen fans. I think that there are people who would actually feel like the, the more sax-heavy Springsteen records would sound dated because just people's people tend to be polarized by the sax in Springsteen songs. Whereas, like, you know, this, yeah, I don't this, understand it at all. That's some like weird hipster thing that sax is bad. I, I find that deeply annoying. And, and the other thing, the other thing I would dis, I would sort of argue about that is like the sax doesn't. If people think sax relates to any era it's actually some sort of like 80s yacht rock thing which is never anywhere near 
what the kind of sax, the, the, the kind of like gutsy R and B sax that, that Clarence Clemens played. So right. it, it, I don't think that it, it you know if anything he was playing like fifties. Fifties rock and roll, fifties R and B. So if it dates it back to the fifties, and so be it. But it's certainly, if you know what I mean, it doesn't really play into any popular cliches about the the saxophone. Oh yeah, I yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. I guess my original point was that I think, in a way, similar to Tango in the Night, that like right, there's a new currency to, to yeah. The, I think the, the synth, sounds, yeah. like the synth sounds and the drum machines on Tunnel of Love, I think in a way have gone from being dated to sounding sort of contemporary. In a way, like when I listen to the War on Drugs, sometimes I hear tunnel of love sounding stuff like influences in like what they're doing and i think that there's sort of like like a new sort of heartland rock revival type thing where it's 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 more sort of in the synthy direction like the late 80s kind of stuff um but uh yeah tunnel of love is like a record that i feel like i had to defend for many many years and now people have kind of come around to liking that record and and again to go back to again to your great point about sort of the reactionary nature of a lot of the records this year, Tunnel of Love to me is definitely a reaction against Born in the USA. You know, it's Big a person. Yeah. It's it's a personal record. It's much more intimate. You know, Bruce sounds more just like a like a regular person as opposed to the sort of larger than life character that he was on that record, uh, which makes it really interesting to hear. Um, you know, I was talking earlier. We were talking earlier about Appetite for Destruction and and how you know I just saw GNR and in, in a way that they're still touring off of Appetite for Destruction, or a lot of people are still interested in them because of that record. We also have to talk about the Joshua Tree in this regard because, of course, U2 uh, is in the midst of a very successful anniversary tour for the Joshua Tree uh, where they've been playing stadiums. Uh, It's been very well received. And, of course, U2, they play arenas and stadiums anyway. They They don't necessarily have to do an anniversary tour to do that, but it does underscore sort of the continued interest and love of the Joshua Tree. I mean, when they, I mean, I, I had to laugh a little bit when they announced this anniversary tour because, in a way, I feel like every U2 tour is a Joshua Tree anniversary tour. Like, you're going to hear most of the record when you go see U2 on any tour that they do, at least all the big hits. Um, but when they announced this tour, it was like an instant sellout. I think they sold like a million tickets in like a couple minutes or something. It was just a ridiculous, a ridiculously fast sellout for this tour. Um, what do you think it is about this record that continues to have appeal for people? Because, you know, people go back and forth on whether this is the best record that you two made or Octune Baby. In a way, it feels like maybe the Joshua Tree has edged ahead in that debate. That's um, just this year. I mean, I, I prefer Octune Baby. Um, and I've, 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 I've probably told the band that to, them, to their faces. But I mean. Me too, by the way. To, I, would, I, I, prefer, I, would vote, I would vote for Octune Baby ahead of Joshua Tree, although they're both great. Well, the, the weird thing about Joshua Tree. I think it's it's possibly there must be other examples. I'm not good at thinking this way, but it's what they learned while they played this live on this tour is that something I've always known, especially because this album I had on cassette. The <laughs> the second side of that cassette was like an alien country to me because they <laughs> they they really front loaded that album. The second side is like the experimental side. The first side is like is like what people think of as Joshua Tree, which is, 
I would say the first four songs, you know? Right. It's really funny. Uh, Where the Streets Have No Name. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, with or without you. In a way, like... And Bullet the Blue Sky after yeah, that. Yeah, Bullet the Blue Sky. But in, I was going to say, in a way, those three songs alone are almost the album. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's sort of... And then everything else is like, wow. And then we put some other stuff that's really interesting and goes in various directions. But it, it's like, when people, I think, legitimately think of... It, so w- when they had to play it live, they had to... They never play any of the songs on the second side. So they had to, like, basically learn them again. Well, and that's... You know? That's it's a really thing. interesting. I mean, like, Joshua Tree, you know, just from a little personal history, this was like the album that got me into music. Like, this was the first album that I really, really loved by anybody. So I was like you when I first had the tape. I only listened to the first side. But then I eventually got to the second side. And I haven't seen this tour yet. I'm going to be seeing this tour here in Minneapolis next month. I'm actually looking forward to the second half more because I've heard... Exactly. Like, I, don't, I don't need to hear Bullet the Blue Sky again. It's a fine song, but like... It kind of blew my mind that they never played Red Hill Mining Town live because that's such a great song. I guess there were so many great songs in the Joshua Tree they could leave some out, but I would think they... It's like they've played Mothers of the Disappeared before, but not Red Hill Mining Town, which well, the, the best. I mean, the best part of the concert, for sure, was the second half. And certainly, in my, obviously, I, I also came to eventually embrace the second half. But I'm talking about, like, as, as a kid on the bus, I just right. being like, it's just, there is something, you know, you, you just get stuck in that first side. But, well, but, especially with know, the tape, where you have to rewind. It's like, oh, well, I know these songs. I'll just rewind it back to the beginning. It's, like, very convenient <laughs> when you only have um, a tape. So uh, watching them sort of, rediscover the power of those songs on the second side. And it's also where the sort of rootsy stuff comes in, you know, and, and the sense that they really were experimenting with being a, a pseudo-American band, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I would say the other thing that Joshua Tree falls into if there's a trend in that year is, like, they labored pretty hard over it. You know, they, they, they had some time and money to spend on it. And, and there, there was, you know, that's the case with bad. It's the case, you know, basically there was still money in the music industry. It's also the case in, with Def Leppard's hysteria. You know, it's like there was time to, even with the relatively primitive technology, to just sit there and overdub and overdub and overdub and overdub and make this, like, concoction that you could only make with that amount of time. Right. And, well, you know, and that's made in, you know, a, a amount of time that you'd now have to make, like, 12 albums in order to break even. So that is a thing, an a 87 thing, I would say. Well, and... I'm glad you brought up Hysteria. I wasn't sure if we were going to if we were going to get to that album, but you know, the other thing about Hysteria, you know, there was like a I guess a 4-year gap between Hysteria, Hysteria and Pyromania. Uh, you know, the drummer lost his arm you know, during yeah. that period, and it's like how many albums have that kind of backstory where your drummer loses his arm and you actually keep the drummer and you go on to make the biggest album of your career? Like that is, there is definitely no other album that has that backstory. I would say. Uh, yeah, so. and that, well, I love. I'm personally a sucker for, like, wild Mutt Lang stories about you know, them, him making you know, making them do vocals over and over again until their throats bled or whatever. You know, like he he was, he was truly a, um, <laughs> he he was quite the taskmaster, um, and and you can really hear it on those records. It's it's those. It's almost like that's an unexplored thing, but no one, as far as something to pick up on, you know, in the, in the tango and in the night way. But the problem is it's so hard to do that I think maybe no one's quite figured it out on one level. On the other level, you could say that they sort of were, that a lot of what the Swedish, a lot of what the Swedish guys did in sort of like late 90s, 2000s teen pop 
possibly drew on Mutt Lang, I would argue, you know. So it's possible that, that you know, like, Hysteria is, is primarily an influence on, like, the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears. Well, and also, you know, and, and for those who don't know, Robert John Mutt Lang was the producer of Hysteria. He also produced Back in Black by ACDC. He produced Pyromania by Def Leppard. And he went on to marry Shania Twain and be the producer of her enormous records in the 90s. And I would say that, you know, you mentioned the teen pop people. I think also Robert, you know, that Mutt Lang ended up being a big influence on country music because of the Shania Twain relationship, yeah. the sort of, he was like, you know, one of the midwives in sort of country rock becoming arena rock in the 90s. And exactly. it was this thing that from, from Def Leppard where on one hand you have just an incredible amount of studio craft where you're laboring in the studio forever and like you said, just you know, singing the chorus a hundred times, making sure the harmonies are perfect. And yet at the same time, the songs are super simple. So they just connect in a way where you hear them the first time, and by the end of it, you're already singing along to it. And he did that on the Def Leppard records, and it was a big thing on the Shania Twain records in the 90s. I mean, he really was a wizard in like sort of hypnotizing massive groups of people <laughs> to sing these enormous songs and, and, and just making them instantly likable for people. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that that he's like a that he's like a grand wizard of uh, hypno, of hypnotizing audiences. <laughs> Maybe don't say grand wizard. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. I know. As, as I was saying, grand wizard, I was like, okay, that's that's not going to work. Um, so for you, I think you said that Appetite is sort of would be your number one record of this year. I think so. I think. I mean, it, again, it, it turns out it, it, it was it was a really good year. It's hard. It's hard to pick, but that that's the one that jumps out for me for I, sure. And that would be. I mean, it, how about you? It's probably the Joshua Tree. Although yeah. it's hard to put Appetite. You know, it's hard to put Baby in the corner. You know, like I do not want to put Appetite second to anything, but it, it would be hard. But yeah, Joshua Tree, Appetite. I think you know, Faith. I love Hysteria. Hysteria was a big record for me growing up, and I think it's still holds up for the most part. Uh, certainly the singles, I think, still sound really great. Um, Pleased to Meet Me by The Replacements, which we didn't really talk about. That was my first Replacements record. I still really love that. Um, yeah, no. Not my, not my number. It's hard to choose Replacements. I don't know if that would be the Replacements album I'd choose. It's a little bit of, but it has Alex Tilton on it. It has, it has amazing stuff on it. Yeah, and then Document by R.E.M. That was maybe the first R.E.M. record I heard because the one I love was the big, sort of breakthrough for them as far as being a chart hit and, and you know, it was a big MTV video and it's the end of the world as we know it is on that record. Um, so yeah. I love and yeah, yeah. And Tunnel of Love, of course, we talked, that's up there. So yeah, it, it, I want to make a list of my favorite records of this year, but it, it would be hard. I mean, there's just so many really good records that came out in 1987. So, you know, I was thinking about this too, you know, you, the, 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 the idea of 87 being a reactionary year I was thinking about like nineteen uh, about years that end in seven tend to be really big years like nineteen sixty seven nineteen seventy seven eighty seven ninety seven is a really great year um, I wonder if there's something to that where in every decade that's where people kind of look back on what's happened earlier in the decade and it becomes almost like a culmination type year because it really does seem like six like six like like this years that end in seven there's something about that you know i, I it could be. You could probably make the same case for eight and nine. Who the hell, you know, who knows? It's, it's, it's certainly, there certainly is some logic to that. On the other hand, there is that thing where 
decades don't have the kind of hard, in music and style and movies, whatever, they don't have the sort of hard stops and starts that we might want. Like, there's always that thing, like I was just revisiting some reporting on, on Pearl Jam's 10 uh, from 91, and, and there, there is that sense of, like, you don't get the memo that the 80s are over and we don't do reverb like that anymore. Right. You know, it just, so there's, there's a bunch of records like that um, from 90, 91 that are still have 80s aspects to them, right. you know, and that that's what's so interesting. Yeah, again, it's like there's no hard stop, you know, it's like it's like uh, De- Def-, Def Leppard and Bruce Springsteen made pretty 80s albums in 1992, you know, right. it, it's, it's this weird, weird, weird thing. It's like decades aren't, you know, they're just human constructs anyway, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to me about 1987. Absolutely. It's always a thrill. Thanks for having me. All right, man, take care. I will let me plug go Rolling Stone Music Now, my podcast. Download that, too. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, he just had Liam Gallagher on the podcast, and I'm extremely jealous of you. <laughs> and I, I was almost just going to ask you about the Liam Gallagher interview. I've actually I interviewed Liam Gallagher six years ago like, when BDI was uh, coming in. To, yeah. I think it was like the first record. And uh, it's one of my favorite interviews, even though it was like, I asked like 24 questions in 15 minutes. Like he was very, uh, uh, you know, succinct in his answers. But on this press tour, he's been like, he's like taking the lead from Noel as like the the best interview now. Like he's just yeah. dropping quotes that are gold all the time. Yeah. Uh, no, he was. He was. I think he's a man of many moods, and he seems like he's in a relatively expansive mood. I was. I was taken aback though when he walked off stage at Lollapalooza because it, it kind of made me wonder what you know whether what I saw was accurate or whether something else was going on. But we'll see. I don't know. From what I hear, this tour has been really good. I mean, I think that was like a hiccup, maybe. I don't know. I'm seeing him later this year. I'm really hoping it's good. He's doing a lot of Oasis songs, which I'm yeah. excited about. Uh, so we'll see. And I know, and he's making overtures about wanting to get back with Noel. Noel's just got to get over it. It's, it's all up to Noel, clearly. So we, we, we'll see. I mean, there will, there will eventually be a big enough bag of money for him to say yes, I would think. I mean, come on. Just get over it, Noel. Do it. Okay, man. Thanks, <laughs> thanks right. again, Brian. Take care. Anytime. Thank you. Okay, that was me and Brian talking about 1987. A year of many, many great records. I think we covered them all. You know, I have a feeling that um, when this podcast posts, I'm going to get tweets from people saying, what about this album? What about this album? And I love that. I love it when you reach out and you engage with the podcast uh, and you talk about us in social media. These are all great things. You know, lets me know that we have an audience out there. And it also helps support the podcast. It gets people interested in what we're doing. So I say this every week, but I want to say it again. I, you know, thank you for listening. This podcast would not exist without you. I appreciate you guys being engaged and caring about what we do here at Celebration Rock. It just makes doing this podcast that much more fun. <laughs> so I had a great time with this week's episode. I hope you guys did too, and uh, we will talk to you again next week.